Welcome to the Bad Boss Brief, a strategic guide on how to not be an asshole at work. We'll tell you about bad bosses, how they can be handled, how to tell if you happen to be one. An executive and an executive coach, both artists working in advertising and marketing for more than two decades, are here to advise you on the ins and outs of office environments. The Bad Boss Brief is your ultimate guide to navigating any employment landscape. Without any further ado, here are your hosts, Eugene S. Robinson and Stephanie Payrollo. Welcome to the Bad Boss Brief. I am Stephanie Payrollo. I'm Eugene S. Robinson, still and remaining. Yeah. We're, most of the time when we're laughing at the top of an episode, it's because there's been some um, technical glitch and that was <laughs> that one was a doozy, but hopefully we've got a fix. So today, episode eight, we're already at eight episodes. Episode eight is the micromanager boss. This is actually a suggestion that we got from a listener who would like to remain anonymous. Thank you very much. If you all want to make a comment or suggest a topic for a future show, WTF at Bad bossbrief.com. So today- See, ne- next time, next time when you mention micromanaging boss, I think it would be maybe a little bit more effective if you, if you said micro managing boss, if you see there's a small difference, if you can hear it. No, I can't explain it to me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. You're uh, micro managing. Uh, yeah, yeah, but yeah, you're yeah. not the <laughs> boss of me. That's right. You, but you see what I did there. I see what you did, but it went right over my head because I'm like, yeah. I have no boss. Um, <laughs> but before we get to micromanaging bosses, um, I want to notice something because to this week for most people is the deadline to file your federal income taxes. And Unless you're in California. Except in California. Why is that? Because natural disaster? The, flo- the floods. Okay. So time for us has been pushed back to October. Okay. But for the rest of us in, say, Washington State, where I live, do tomorrow taxes. So I looked up um, what do big corporations pay? And what I found was, according to the Center for American Progress, and we're looking at 2021, so this would be last taxed year, here are three companies that paid, not only did they not pay any taxes, they got significant refunds back. AT&T paid zero federal income tax and got a refund of $1.2 billion with a B. That's what came back to them. And God, they that's made, progress. Yeah. In spite of the fact that they made almost $30 billion in earnings. Ah. Dow got a tax refund of $46 million, despite the fact that they made $1.5 billion in earnings. That's, these are all with a B. Billion with a B. So to give you a sense of the scale, right? So we all pay income tax depending on our bracket, which is the percentage of you know taxes that are due based on our income. The highest tax bracket is 37%. Just to give you like the high average would say it's 35%. That's a single person making $250,000 for last year would be paying 35%. At the other end of the range is somebody who makes $10,000 or less in an entire calendar year, right? So that's, for most people, not working a lot. $10,000 or less pays 10% of their income in federal taxes, right? Which is actually more than Amazon pays. Amazon's effective federal income tax rate is was 6.1%. So they made 30 $5.1 billion in the United States 
just the United States, and they only paid 6.1% taxes. Exxon paid 2.8%. Now, I remember what gas cost in 2021. That's probably why Exxon made $9.3 billion, but only paid 2.8% of taxes. Well, no, look, 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 I, I, don't, I don't know what you're talking about here. Look, look, these, these, these corporations, these good people, because corporations are now people, they have done so much. They have done so much for the rest of us. Why begrudge them a few billion dollars here or there? Well, and if we're going to treat them like people, which to your point, the Supreme Court has said they they are, and they get to have free speech and give money wherever they want to, then we should probably charge them some taxes. And I think the key point for this is that, you know, there's a lot of noise. The Republicans are complaining about the debt ceiling. People are complaining that there isn't the kind of funding they would like to see to whatever their pet project is. Well, a simple way would be to have big companies like Amazon pay at least as much as the retired guy who's a greeter at Walmart a couple days a month pays in his federal taxes. You know, uh, in the old days in New York City, uh, when you jumped a turnstile, they would scream at you from the booth, pay your fare. And a friend of mine who was in a, in a hardcore band had a whole song called Pay Your Fare. And I think of that with this tax segment, pay your share. Yep. Because, of course, they also these, – these corporations are also asking for tremendous tax breaks. If we're going to come and live in your, in your city, employ people, all the things. All right. Let's get to the micromanager boss. And let's just first start by defining what a micromanager boss is. It is somebody who is – over-functioning. Now, that's a term that I use a lot, which is if you are doing something for someone else who is capable of doing the thing themselves, then you are over-functioning. People who are micromanagers also tend to be very controlling. They'll get in the weeds. They'll manage every specific thing. And what happens is it's very, it's oppressive. It's difficult to work for a person like that. It also chokes any kind of entrepreneurial spirit, any kind of innovation, any sort of creativity. So, yeah. Have you ever had yeah, one of those? Yeah, that's, that, that's the, uh, the one time, the one major time I did. Second job out of college, um, I had a boss who was that way. And uncharacteristic for me, I mean, I never, again, duplicated in my professional life, was me butting heads with him and then compete, complete uh, capitulation. On whose part? Easy. You, you capitulated? I, I just folded. It's like, you know, it's like the teenager who, you know, <laughs> keeps screwing up, mowing up the lawn so he doesn't have to mow the lawn. It's like you have micromanaged me into non-performance. So got it. You do it. You do it. You do it. And uh, I had a, bi- a, a business I was starting, a store, CFY, and I spent my time doing that. And uh, if you wanted to do the work, go ahead. Um, that that wasn't a successful professional because he was unhappy and I was unhappy. I don't even know how aware he was of him being a micromanager, but it was it was it was hateful and unpleasant, um, and it was based on either an assumption that uh, I'll give you an example. It's like the kind of thing where somebody says. You need to use a black pen on that, or I want you to use a black pen on that, when in actual fact, 
me using a black pen or a blue pen has no bearing on the successful outcome of the situation. It's maddening. Well, and the thing is, it's like, I believe everybody does something. When people do things, it serves them in some way, right? Yeah. So so what do you think it was that served? Like, what was he trying to do? Well, it's, look, it was at Electric Power Research Research Institute, and uh, utilities had been just deregulated in California. Now, utilities are t- typically, if you have stock positions, the kind of stocks that uh, they just they kind of like granny stocks. If you just want to park your money somewhere, you don't want to lose it. You're not looking for a lot of growth. You don't want anything lost. You just poke along in utilities. They deregulate it, and suddenly it's it's the wild west. But personalities that had chosen to work in the utility field, typically very staid. And this was a research institute. So they just had very specific ways they wanted things done. And uh, uh, they probably either should not have hired for the role. They should not have hired me for the role. But I, I, I stand to re- I, it stands to reason to me that the changes I made, editorial changes I've made, given my record of award-winning editorial production, would have garnered them a greater readership. But he didn't care about that. He wanted it done the way he we wanted it done, and readership was secondary consideration because it's a research institute. So well, and I think when I one of the things that I suggest to people when they have bosses who are micromanagers mm-hmm. is try to understand why. Right. Because if you understand why they're doing it, it might give you some suggestions in terms of tactics to to combat this kind of a boss. Right. And one of the ones that you talk about is it sounds like he was afraid. He was very attached to the status quo. And and that's a big I mean, fear underlies most dysfunctions in the workplace all Mm -hmm. the time, as far as I can as far as I've observed. But I think that there are people who are micromanaging because they're afraid. They're afraid that someone's going to make a mistake. They're going to be afraid that their corporation or division is going to be besmirched in some way, that they are the only ones that can uphold the high standards. And so in those cases, if you end up with a a micromanager who's micromanaging out of fear, what you can try and figure out is what are they afraid of, right? So like a, a situation, imagine a situation where... There is a senior, I'll just use advertising, there's a senior account person and their boss insists on micromanaging every communication to a particular client, right? I need to see every email before it goes. I need to be in every meeting. And the way that I would suggest if I were coaching that person to deal with that would be to try to understand what's behind that on the boss's part. If the person that came before you in the organization ruined a client relationship by making a mistake or making an inappropriate comment and caused the agency a huge amount of money, well, then you know you know what's behind that, right? You know why. If, if, on the other hand, this boss has done this to every single person and that's just the way that they operate, then you're, then you're dealing with something different and you have a different kind of problem to solve. The, the next reason that I think people do this micromanaging is it's – Leaders who don't understand that different people need to be managed in different ways. Mm-hmm. Right? So what you or I might consider micromanaging, someone who likes a lot of structure may feel more mm-hmm. comfortable with because they know exactly what they're supposed to do and exactly how they're supposed to do it. And yeah. one of the mis- mistakes that leaders make is they assume that people think like them. 
mm-hmm. or think like what you know whatever their their limited group is and they don't take the time to just ask how do you want to be managed what is the <clears throat> most effective way for me to motivate you right mm-hmm. clearly the micromanager that you were discussing never asked you what kind of management style you would like and i think this idea of asking extends to just general awareness like My guess is that there are people who are going to be listening to this Mm. who absolutely do not identify themselves as micromanagers, (laughs) but that if you asked the people that work for them, they would hear a completely different story. A lot of us, unfortunately, are unaware. And the challenge is, is that, you know, I do um, 360s, right? I'll go in Mm -hmm. and I'll interview the peers of the person in question, their supervisors, and especially the people that work for them. And I do it Mm. confidentially. And a lot of information comes out in that forum that is sometimes surprising to the leader. And sometimes not. Sometimes they have a pretty good idea. But if you don't have a way to get information that is either confidential or protected in some way, you don't actually know what the people working for you think of you. Right, right. Well, and in this instance, too, when I expanded the aperture, I I figured out that his wife had had Alzheimer's. Mm. So the idea that things at home were slipping out of control might have contributed to, uh, you know, him wanting things professionally to be really under control. But the reality of it is I I never did did that again. My strategy afterward was to to outpace them, you know. Um, of course, I did this most significantly with my nine years at Ozzy, where I worked uh, at least two, no fewer than two days that were 24-hour days, usually 18 hours a week, seven days a week. Got to, I, With that, I earned myself probably about 20% less micromanaging. You know, I, my boss didn't, my, didn't trust me in every regard, but at least in that regard, he, he his understanding was that I, I can trust that Eugene's going to get the work done. That much was fine. I, he was not finagling with my content, which made a big difference to, to me. Yeah, but, you know, that makes me sad, too, because I've certainly done that. I have worked 24-hour shifts to try to impress whoever it was that was in charge. And yeah. again, I think that no one would question my work ethic. The mm. challenge is, is that I'm really hoping that there can be more of a shift, right? That there will come a time where people will look back at this era and be like, well, nobody works that hard. Like you don't need to, you don't have to prove yourself, you know? And again, the question that I would ask myself, I mean, probably not at Aussie, but in other places, if you or I were white guys, would there be that same level of needing to impress? I, I don't know the answer to that, but I think. Well, g- given that my boss was black, I, I don't, I don't, but he was, I don't know. He was just such a weird study. I mean, given the charges, he's, the Department of Justice charges he's looking at, I think that bears witness to that. Um, but yeah, I think, I think there's part of that imposter syndrome going on both sides of, of the equation, you know, not in my case. I was not worried about actually whether I belong there, but I'm sure that was on the minds of the people in this instance, the guy at Electric Power Research Institute, whether or not, you know, I was up to the job. I mean, you know, this is before I won all the awards, before, you know, I had proven myself, but I've been writing for publications and getting paid for it since I was 15. He should, you know, you should have trusted me just a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think that the challenge is 
you know, there's a lot of different reasons people will show up and, and be micromanaging. But the one that I think is most difficult to deal with is when they have unresolved issues from, yeah. you know, their family of origin growing up, something that happened. You know, you mentioned the the boss who had a, a wife with Alzheimer's. I mean, those circumstances are sad. You know, like I've certainly known a number of people who grew up in alcoholic homes or homes where there was some sort of domestic violence. And a lot of times those people can use control to make themselves feel calm, right? It's it's soothing to them to be in charge of everything. It also can be reassuring if they are performing at a very high level, working the really long hours, working the, you know, kind of like crazy things. And I mean, I think that was a lot of what was motivating me, right? It's like, okay, you may be sexually harassing me. You may not think that I deserve to be here as a woman. You may be whatever, but I'll show you all work yeah. 70 hours a week, every week as a single mom with two young kids. Yeah. You know, and that's the thing that I think is, that I think is disappointing is that that was the way that we both spent, we both went to it. And, you know, it's funny I was thinking this weekend about cultural shifts, right? So I had, I was, my four-year-old granddaughter, Ruby, was spending the night with us and we decided to watch a G-rated movie. So it's G-rated, figure this is fine. And it's called The Great Mouse Detective. And I don't know when it came out, but it was a while ago. And there's a mouse who's supposed to be like Sherlock Holmes. And so he's smoking this meerschaum pipe. Mm. And Ruby looks at the screen. She's like, what is that? What is he doing? And I realized she has never seen anyone smoke. Right. right. I mean, she watches like little kid TV, Sesame Street, Curious George. And she didn't, and she wanted me to explain it to her. Right. You know? And she's looking at me as I'm explaining, basically, you put something in your face and you light it on fire. And she was very confused. She was like, well, does it hurt? You know, and you could see her like trying to get her head around it. But what I realized is that I want Ruby's kids and grandkids to look with that same confusion and be like, wait, people work 12-hour days and then got laid off with no notice? I want there to be that kind of cultural shift. I don't know. Do you think there's any chance? I, you know, I, I, I wonder about that. I mean, there's always this weird kind of professional machismo um, but it, it, the, the, the boundaries of this shift, I mean, if you told me in 2023 that people would comfortably talk about taking psychedelics in a workplace, I would get out, but that's certainly what's happening. Of course, I don't think it's everybody who can talk comfortably about taking psychedelics at work. <laughs> I think you have to have those letters C and E and O around your name, and then you can be as high as you want through your workday. Uh, for the rest of us, probably inadvisable. But um, but at the same time, that's something I never saw coming. So there's these strange things happen. Um, maybe, yeah, maybe. but I always think of the the micro dosers as being this, you know, these white guys, right? The like white tech bro folks mm. that are able to do that, right? It's not it's not you and me. We're not. Well, and, 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 and there's also, to, I mean, this is getting into the weeds, but they, they all are like meeting at like Burning Man, <laughs> so, which is like not sort of advisable if you're over 40, you know, you, you that could be tough on you. <laughs> so like I say, I, I've known people who have lost businesses, came to it late in the game, brilliant minds, um, and not a single one of them was uh, a woman or an, uh, a person of color. So it's not serving them well either. 
Although I did think it was interesting. I'm sure you, I know you saw the same article I did in the New York Times this weekend when they were talking about people getting caught for corporate malfeasance, these people that lied to investors. And they had a long list that interestingly enough had very few white guys on it. Oh, because white guys are innocent. <laughs> <laughs> but I know oh, no, Sam, that- Sam, Sam Bankman Fried was in there, but yeah, of but- course you could make. But the other ones, they were talking about the woman that was had the, um, you know, the the college yes. fundings. You know, they had yeah. they had the list. Carlos was on there, but it was just Carlos interesting. Watson from Aussie Media. Yes, he was in there, but it was just interesting because when you look at the proportion of investment and VC attention that goes to women, women of color, men of color, it's it's minuscule, right? It's tiny, tiny, tiny. And the idea that in this article, it's so misrepresented, but anyway. Hey, listen, listen, we have to go back to the Godfather for that, where Michael Corleone at one point says through a a jaw that's been wired shut, we have friends at newspapers. They might like a story like that. (laughs) (laughs) You know? Do you have a fire me for this week? Oh boy, I do, I do, I do. It's uh, it brings me no joy. This one, um, if you read my Substack, it's on Bob Lee, uh, the CEO, uh, started founder of Cash App. Um, he was at Square, which I think is now called Block, and a few other companies had moved out of San Francisco to Miami, I guess, on the death of his mother to spend some time with his father. Coincident to this, he's separated from his wife. His kids are here in San Francisco. Maybe he was back visiting his kids. And uh, at 2.35 last Thursday, or Thursday before last, he was stabbed to death uh, three times, two in the chest and then one in the heart. Um, and instanta- I, I, I was tuned into the story because he stumbles up to a door and it's caught on video. And I recognize the building. It's a mm-hmm. super expensive uh, high rise. And um, a friend of mine, turns out, had lived there. And he was also a known associate of the guy. And he tweeted out that this is, you know, San Francisco needs to get its crime situation uh, under control. And no sooner had that been put out there than Elon Musk had retweeted back on his old stalking horse of, you know, San Francisco liberals have destroyed the city, blah, blah, blah. And within 72 hours, cops who simply showed up and said, give me your cell phone, went through the cell phones, you know, looked through text messages, discovered it was the founder and CEO of a company called, uh, some IT company, I can't remember the name, who uh, they had been hanging out all day and uh, apparently there's an argument about his sister who maybe maybe drugs were involved or not involved or the guy didn't want him messing with the sister, didn't want him giving the sister, you know, here's some here's some edibles, whatever it was happening. He showed up at the guy's apartment. They went for a drive in his very expensive BMW. He's not homeless. Got a car. Uh, house. $500,000 apartment in Emeryville, Tony Emeryville. And he stabs him three times before driving off and leaving him there. Um, thus far, there's been no apology to the homeless of San Francisco. Uh, Musk has buried the story. We don't hear anybody talking about it. And so my argument is, is for CEOs that keep their mouths shut. Um, we put Bob Iger 
on a on a fire me portion of an older show. But recently reading about Bob Iger and how he's run circles around DeSantis in Miami with Disney's, you know, muscular weight and power, you know, fighting these anti-Disney initiatives that DeSantis thinks like well, he's dealing with people who have never been to the rodeo before. Iger has proven himself to be like a great kind of champion, unexpected champion, you know, and, and until pretty much a couple of months ago, I, his name had not entered my head for any reason. Silence, <laughs> you know, effective silent you know this this clown school of ceoing it really leaves something to be desired and I, I i would like i would like people in a position to do so you don't have to have us hear from you all the time so no and i mean fire. that would be that would be lovely and i do think some of those people are probably working out whatever their issues were with you know right. whatever they're sorting through but I think the challenge is, is that if for some reason you feel like it's part of your brand to be commenting on, you know, issues that you consider of interest to you or politically relevant or whatever, okay, then comment on that. Because what I think is interesting is that Musk had lots to say about a white mm -hmm. CEO being stabbed in San Francisco and who might or might not have done that. But he's had nothing to say about Ralph Yarl, the 16-year-old who went to pick up his you know, twin siblings and was shot because he got the wrong house at 10 o'clock at night. He was shot twice. He's on, you know, he's in the hospital. If you're going to talk about crime, if you're going to talk about crime that is done unjustly, if you're going to yep. wring your hands, then maybe do it a little more consistently. Yeah. And this kid, and this kid was a hot shot. This kid was a get going on to like U of T with a uh, chemical engineering scholarship possibly um i mean the good news is that it looks like he'll pull through um they've started gofundme that has now gotten him up to a million dollars so his need to actually have a scholarship to pay to go to college is presuming he can get through the trauma of what's happened to him um but, but oh oh did, uh, did we i'm sorry did we make a mention that the kid who was shot was african-american did you say that i don't oh yeah I I yeah. just assumed. I mean, again, I'm just assuming people I, know maybe that. Maybe Musk. Maybe Musk. Maybe if he knew he was African American, he he would have tweeted that out because he feels yeah. strongly about that. Yeah. yeah. No. And and what also is interesting is I was looking up an article before we we started this, and I was there was an article in the Daily Mail in the UK, and I mm. thought, oh, I wonder I wonder how they're covering this in in England, and mm. they made a lot of noise about the fact that he was an honor student and a musical genius. And they had pictures of him, you know, with his trombone. And they were talking about all these things in a way where I was like, would they give the same coverage to a white kid? Mm -hmm. You know, like, mm -hmm. like let us quickly assure you that this kid was smart, that this kid was doing well in school, right. that this kid right. was going to pick up his siblings. That they, right. it, it's like, you know what? A kid who's getting like bad grades, who doesn't do after school activities, who, you know, isn't doing isn't on his way to some fantastic college should still be able to go up to a house at 10 o'clock at night and not be shot twice yeah. and then yeah. have to go to multiple. He had to walk to three houses to get somebody to open the door and help him. You know, a friend of mine was attacked by a serial killer in Florida and she could escape from the vehicle and went up to a few houses to be let in and they wouldn't let her in. And, uh, she goes up to a house and sees a mezuzah and says, you have to let me in. 
I'm Jewish. And they said, they, what's, what's your Hebrew name? They quizzed her. So she gave her full Hebrew name and they, there's a pause, did click, 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 click. You know, she started quoting. She goes, according to the Torah, you have to let me in. And that's when they ask, okay, well, what's your Hebrew name? She gives a Hebrew name, click, click, click. They let her in. Wow. That reminds me of a story of you getting quizzed on the five glorious mysteries of the rosary and knowing them. But that's another story for another time. (laughs) We are are at time right now. And uh, our next episode is going to be about the over-promising boss. For anyone who has ever gotten worthless stock options or been told they're getting a raise or a promotion that never shows up, please join us. It is another submission from a listener. Again, WTF at badbossbrief.com. And he actually sent in the story and the fact checking and the press release for it. So we'll talk to you about that next time in two weeks on the Bad Boss Brief. (laughs) Thanks. See you soon. Bye. Adios. Thank you for listening to the Bad Boss Brief with your hosts, Eugene S. Robinson and Stephanie Payrollo. You can check out more of their work by visiting consigliera.substack.com for Stephanie and Eugene S. Robinson.substack.com for Eugene. You can also find Eugene at Mr. Sleep 3, that's the number 3, on Instagram. Send us your questions or comments to WTF at badbossbrief.com and be sure to join us right here on your favorite podcast platform for more insights every other week. Until next time, don't be an asshole at work.